welcome back to Getting There, where we're always surviving, we're sometimes starving, and we're just trying our best to make it. I'm Shelby. I'm here with my co-host. I'm Deanna. And this podcast is being produced through Loyola University Chicago's Her Campus chapter. We're just here to talk about the things that are crazy and exciting and wild and weird about being a young woman on the edge of a huge transition. And we're just trying to get there. Speaking of transition, this week is special for two reasons. First of all, we are here in Loyola's podcasting studio downtown. A major upgrade from our setup in my living room where (laughs) four other people were living their everyday lives. And second, we are here with a very exciting, very esteemed guest. We have Dr. Beth Noble with us in studio today. Dr. Noble is currently a professor at Fordham University in New York City, but before diving into teaching, she had a long career as a journalist with experience in newspapers, magazine, radio, television, and online. And not like it's a super big deal or anything, but she was the bureau chief for CBS News in Moscow from 1999 to 2006. I think that's the coolest thing ever. Beth, thank you so, so much for being here. Oh, you're so welcome. This is so fun. I'm (laughs) just delighted to meet with you and to get a chance to talk about journalism. We're excited, too. And before we begin, Diana, please. As you all know at home, we are women on the go. We're constantly commuting. And so to fill the time, we recommend songs and podcasts to each other. And so we are going to give a song or podcast recommendation to you all. Beth, would you like to start us off? Sure. So uh, should I start with my podcast recommendation? Yes. Okay. It's called Journalism Today, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, It is done by Mac Rosenberg, who is a young Fordham graduate who works at WCBS News Radio 880 in New York uh, as an anchor and reporter. And when he is not doing that, he is interviewing all kinds of different journalists and people involved in journalism about uh, their careers. And it's all really meant for young journalists and journalism students wanting to break in. So he's interviewed some journalists like uh, David Begnote of CBS. Uh, this week's podcast is with The Mooch, Anthony Scaramucci. Oh, my no goodness. Way. No way. The Mooch. That's crazy. Um, and in full transparency, he interviewed me as well. <laughs> oh, quick little Very plug. nice for him and probably <laughs> left over from him wanting to get a grade in some course oh. I don't <laughs> offer anymore. Uh, so it's, it's really a great um, podcast, and I don't know of anything else that's really out there for young journalists. So I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to listen to it, honestly. Yeah, definitely. I think podcasts kind of serve as a different platform for learning and it's more of a we were talking about this earlier an intimate conversation and I think it's it's a better tool I think for that kind of that kind of use exactly especially when there's not really a niche for or a podcast that I can think of for young journalists specifically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is what we're going to try to do today just for one episode yeah just, just for one we're, we're diver- diverging a little bit Did you also have a song recommendation that you wanted to give? Oh, so I don't have a song, but I do have a band. Mm -hmm. So the band is called uh, On the Sun. They are a Brooklyn kind of folk, uh, rock, soul band. Mm -hmm. And my cousin, uh, full transparency, my cousin Seth Falk is the drummer. Oh my gosh. Um, they're I love a, that. a great band. They uh, traveled the country. They just finished up a tour where they went all the way to California and around the country. Um, and check them out. They're they're good. I'm excited. Me too. And that's like we talked about this. Like we're very into like folky, yeah, si- like synthy beats. So that seems like it would resonate with the both of us. Exactly. Does your song this week resonate with that? Uh, not this week. <laughs> Usually it does. This is a bit of. This is something different for me. 
Um, Shelby and I kind of play into these stereotypes where my song is usually very upbeat, kind of gets you going, something to listen to on the train on the way to work. And Shelby's songs are usually a little bit calmer. Some would say sad. Some would say. Some some would say more poetic. <laughs> more poetic, I believe. Um, my song this week is Mariner's Apartment Complex by Lana Del Rey. I don't know if you're familiar, either of you, but Lana is one of my favorite artists. Uh, she went to Fordham. Did she really? She sure did. Oh, all the best people are just at Fordham. I guess. Like, let's say <laughs> all the best people are Jesuit colleges. And confirmed. That. that is a confirmed, confirmed. fact. <laughs> you all heard it here. Um, it's a very, it's very reminiscent of like '70s slow rock, and yeah. it's just Lana's voice is always so soothing, and her lyrics are so complex. And so this is, it's my favorite song for the week. I love that. <laughs> This week, I picked Joshua Tree by Rozzy. Um, it's kind of like a laid-back soul song. Not quite soul, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all about um, looking back at something and wanting to remember the good parts of it. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Okay. Now that that is out of the way, normally our episodes, Deanna and I kind of we try to look at an issue that maybe we're struggling with or the people around us are struggling with. And we don't pretend to have answers, but mm-hmm. we try to figure things out and try to make sense of things. Um, this is going to be a little bit different format because we're with somebody who has made sense of a lot of things. So, <laughs> so um, we're here today to discuss journalism and growing up and life after college, which are all super calm and not scary topics at all. Yeah, no <laughs> pressure in the slightest. So... If I could kick things off. Go for it. All right, so the first question. For um, all of you listening at home, uh, Beth has lived in Russia and has reported out of Moscow for years, but she has also reported all over the world. So can you talk a little bit about the places that you've been and any places that stick out to you in particular? Oh, well, that one's easy. I've <laughs> been all over Europe and all over the former Soviet Union. Um, and, and some of those places are really surprisingly wonderful. Uh, Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, is one that just stole my heart, just so beautiful the people are so nice it's mountainous it's gorgeous Uh, it's the perfect place unless you have a nut allergy because uh, pretty much all (laughs) the food has walnuts in it so if you have a nut allergy avoid georgia otherwise uh, it's uh, just a, a really fun place to visit but I have to say the most memorable place that I worked was Afghanistan. Mm. Um, I went there for about a month in 2002 after the fighting had ended and uh, the U.S. was kind of in charge and, and helping a new government get settled there. And uh, it was like going to another planet. Um, it, the society there was so different. And, you know, some of us travel and we might go to... I don't know, France or England and say, or Mexico and say, wow, it's so different. No, this is so different. Um, People in Kabul, the capital, are some of them are living in mud huts with no running water and no electricity in in a very primitive way. It's very tribal um, and it's really difficult place for women. Uh, I was with a correspondent from CBS and we dressed very modestly and headscarves and all that and tried not to go out in public if we didn't have to but sometimes we had to we wanted to film sometimes outside and if we were outside for a minute there would be a hundred men surrounding us and, and I'm really not exaggerating um, but the people were, were, were actually just really curious um, 
people wanted to talk to us if they could speak English and find out what we were doing there. And um, uh, I don't I don't want this to sound weird, but like men would like to just rub my hand and it would be like, oh, you're an American woman. What do you feel like? Not really understanding that maybe I didn't want them to <laughs> rub my hand. Yeah. So there were things about it that were really weird. I remember once we were driving somewhere in a minivan and a man was riding on in a bicycle. And as our van kind of was stopped at a traffic light, he looked over and then he was like, it's a woman and she's not <laughs> Afghan. And he started to stare at us. And he almost fell off his bicycle. It was a... Uh, yeah, but a fascinating place. I mean, one of the the places we went to frequently was Bagram Air Base, the, the main, still the main base for U.S. troops, about an hour drive north of Kabul. And we would drive across this plain where there were Bedouins living in tents with camels, um, living as they had 100 or 1,000 years ago. And uh, the mountains there are just majestic um, you know, thousands of feet high, covered with snow. Parts of Afghanistan are, are just stunningly beautiful. Um, and it was really interesting to be in a place, although very, very foreign, and where we really stuck out, um, where people were optimistic about the future. And, and that was true about Russia, too, when I first got there, and not so much today. I think that's super interesting that you're pointing out the optimism and also the beauty of Afghanistan. I think that a lot of people, even just like where I grew up from in the Midwest, would not associate either of those things with Afghanistan. Um, oh, which for, oh, for sure. Like I think those aspects of like you know a lot of a lot of countries, a lot of locations get forgotten about when there is you know negative negative actions happening. All the beauty and wonderful things about countries kind of get left to the wayside. Well, I think one thing that's really important for everyone to remember is that we're really all the same. I mean, there's a lot of things that divide people in our world today. But when you come down to it, you know, we've, we're, we're all humans. Uh, for those of us who have children, we want a better world for them. We want them to live in prosperity um, and safety. And I think um, it's, really, it, it's really easy to forget that sometimes. Um, we were very lucky that some of the Afghans on our staff had us over. And, you know, uh, I remember going to a, a house, and it was the first time that I saw some Afghan women who weren't wearing uh, the burqa, which covers them literally from head to toe. And underneath, they were beautiful. They were made up. They were wearing lots of jewelry. And they, the teenagers were, were just like teenagers here. And they had, like, pictures, you know, cut out of magazines on their walls. And all they wanted to ask about was, like, what's life like in America? What do, what do girls our age do? Do they get to go to school? Do they get to work? And they were so curious about the world and, and really beautiful. Um, and so I think one of the most important uh, things about being a journalist is that it's a privilege to get to meet people uh, for stories. It's a privilege to get to tell other people's stories. It, that's a great way to put it. It's something that we talk a lot about in our classes is the way that you write the story is going to determine how some people are going to view that exact moment. You have a great responsibility. Um, and speaking of that responsibility, the way that journalism has evolved and changed even over the last 10 years is really exciting. And I'm curious, what's some aspect about journalism now that you're really excited about? Well, just the accessibility. I mean, I can wake up every morning and read the Russian papers or watch Russian television, 
Um, when I first got to Russia in 1990 for my first visit, and for the f couple of years after that, to get a phone call out to the West, you had to book it with the operator and wait for an hour or two hours or three hours or four hours and sort of sit by the phone because you never knew it was going to come. So it still just sort of blows my mind that I'm texting with friends in Russia or like we're communicating on Facebook or WhatsApp or some, you know, WhatsApp or something. It's like our world is so small um, and it's so much easier to find people who have been affected by stories. Um, so the, the, the downside of all that is just the speed. Speed can, um, you know, really make people cut corners and um, report things before they're sure. And there's so much pressure to be the first and not necessarily to be the best. When I was working for CBS, we would often uh, go out in the field to cover a story and there'd be a team from CNN there or BBC. And we kept saying, boy, we're really glad that's not us because we're going to do the morning news and then we're going to walk away for eight hours and we're going to go report and talk to people and think and craft something. Um, and so that's uh, it's great that there's, you know, 24 seven journalism, but it's also nice that that's uh, some journalists aren't tied to a camera or a microphone and get to go off and actually think. Mm -hmm. We actually talked about that in my broadcasting mm -hmm. class like last week about how you can no longer think of it like I'm going to go out and get this story and have it ready for the five o'clock news edition. Now you have to be live tweeting it as you're there and uploading to the web as you're there. And it changes the whole dynamic of what a journalist has to think about and care about when they're in the field, which I think is crazy. And as someone, I, I am not a journalism major. Uh, Shelby obviously kind of fills me in on a lot of <laughs> what goes on in the classes, the things that she's learning. But as someone, you know, that does get a lot of the news, not just from, you know, the papers that I'm subscribed to, but also like Twitter. My Twitter feed is constantly filled with news. And because there is such a large demographic of people who never knew life before instant news, a lot of them just expect that the information that they're getting is correct that quick, like that quickly updated. So I think that's a very important thing to send out is know trust a news source but not the stories that come out immediately yeah take everything with a grain of salt i should say mm. you had a really good question to ask i do i'm really excited to I hear do. this answer so uh what was the toughest pill to swallow as a young female journalist were there any quote-unquote unspoken rules and how did you go about navigating those oh that is a really good question mm -hmm. so i myself uh you know had a pretty easy time of that, but I know of other young journalists who did not. And, uh, you know, for sure, I, I have acquaintances who I, I know were, um, you know, asked for sexual favors by their bosses um, and were forced into some very, very difficult decisions about what to do about that. Um, and, you know, when I was coming up, news organizations were not as uh, aware of the issue as they are today. Like, I think if, if something happened today, more people would know how to handle it and how to, you know, turn somebody down and they would know to go to their supervisor. But this was, you know, 20, 25 years ago, people... Um, I think a lot of women thought that if, uh, you know, somebody acted inappropriately towards them, it was their fault, um, which, of course, it wasn't, uh, and that the, the whole new newsroom culture was so different. I mean, I know 
um, you know, all kinds of news organizations were dominated by men and, and the kind of stuff that we look down upon today was just kind of accepted that, you know, maybe uh, a man would, you know, pinch his secretary's bottom. And that was just sort of like, oh, so is those being playful. Like that was society's view of it, not just that, oh, my gosh, that's sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. So I think there were a couple of times where it, um, it happened even before now. I mean, now the Me Too movement has uh, made huge changes. Maybe not everything is perfect, but things are definitely better and more more men and women are aware of what's going on. Um, but it also happened a lot um, in the 80s when Anita Hill um, was uh, on, on Congress uh, uh, giving congressional testimony. Um, a, a lot of men I know in the news business then sort of said, oh, wow, you mean if, if I hang up a calendar and it's got, like, women in bikinis, that's that's a problem like yeah that's a problem oh my gosh I didn't know I never thought about it that way so I think for your generation um, you know not that things are perfect but I think your generation is going to have an easier time with these issues than my generation did and in your classes the young um, male journalists that you're teaching do you see these types of conversations being had or is it kind of something where it's a lot more ingrained now that these conversations have already been happening? Or what are you noticing in your classes? So, I mean, we talk about it. We talk about it in journalism classes, and we talk about it in not journalism classes. Um, you know, I teach a class that's half broadcast history and half American history. It's, it counts in, in both departments, I think. And uh, when we're talking about the women's rights movement, you know, I try to make it personal for the, you know, for everybody in the class. Like, think about it. Like, does your your mother work? Do you ha did your grandmother work? Um, wow, well, do you want them to be treated in the workplace? Have you been working yourself? How do you treat the people around you? Um, you know, and, and people forget. You know, harassment can be not just men of women. It can be women of men, men of men, women of women, and you know, non-binary of non-binary. Um, it's it's an issue for everyone. Uh, and and again, I think. Now people are much more aware of that. Um, so we, we talk about it a lot. And, you know, there's something to the Jesuit tra tradition um, that you have here at Loyola and that we have at, at Fordham, which is that, you know, we really want to produce students who are men and women for others. And we want them to take into account how other people feel uh, on many different levels. And this is a, an important one. That's something that always surprises my friends back home who have never heard of the Jesuits maybe mm -hmm, and yeah. when they know I'm going to a Catholic school and I describe the social justice aspect and the sustainability everything. Exactly. Yeah. People are always kind of like what? <laughs> and like like that those conversations are in all of our core curriculum classes and like everything has, you know, the angle of doing good for others no matter if it's like your science class, your math class, anything like my ethics was all like business based. You have to take an ethics class um, in every discipline that you are in. Mm -hmm. So I just think the fact that we are having these conversations in different like contexts is super helpful for this next generation to join the workforce. So exciting, hopefully exciting. It is exciting. And on a lighter note, <laughs> we were really curious if you had any 
stories from your time in the field that have stuck with you that make you laugh when you think about them? Oh, I have some that make me cry. Oh, and, uh, some that make me laugh. No, no. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, um, we did a great story in about 2003. Um, we heard or we saw in the Russian paper something about how people in a little town on the border of Russia and Kazakhstan, oh, this is the sad part of the story, they were, they were getting cancer because uh, the Russian, you know, Cape Canaveral is on the water, and so rockets go up and they drop all their toxic fuel and pieces of the rocket into the ocean. In Russia, the Cosmodrome is right in the middle of a giant continent. Um, and so when it, the rockets go up, the second and third stages fall on land. And so there was this one area in particular where uh, the, the pieces of the rocket were coming down and they were dropping rocket fuel. And it was supposed to be uninhabited where all this stuff dropped, but it was an inhabited area. And so we went out there. And so we had to fly to Siberia. And then we had to take a car for eight hours over oh. some really bumpy roads to get out <laughs> to this little town mm -hmm. where this was all going on. Um, and it was a wonderful story. I don't know that our reporting made it made a difference. But it, you know, it did what we're supposed to do with journalism, which is to, to give a, a voice to the voiceless. And so a couple of funny things happened on that. Um, so the, the first a uh, funny thing is that because um, it was sort of a strategic place with something important going on, because there was actually a rocket going up that we caught uh, flying overhead and dropping things. I don't know if we saw it dropping things. We saw it going overhead. And so there were people from the emergencies ministry there, which is a ministry we don't have in America, but it's like if there's an emergency, you call these guys and they rescue you and help you out. And so this guy from the emergencies ministry, sort of the head of this crew, said, Oh, you're not American journalists. You're spies. It's oh. like, no, actually, not what not, you want to hear. <laughs> not not no, what you want to no. hear. We're, we're not spies. We're accredited journalists. Here are our accreditation cards given to us by the Russian government. No, no, I don't believe it. You're spies. <sighs> no, we're not spies. Oh we're journalists. God. And he was like, well, you're, the only way to prove to me that you're not spies oh is gosh. to drink vodka with me. If you're <laughs> really spies, then you wouldn't drink with me. So we had to drink a couple of shots of vodka with this guy to prove to him that we <laughs> were not spies. Oh my goodness, I love this, this is, test. This is before you started reporting yeah, this for the was day? A, yeah, oh before. my gosh. Well, we, we went out at like 3 o'clock in the morning to be in position for this rocket going overhead. So this was the night before, so we had a little time to drink some coffee. <laughs> Another funny thing happened on that trip. So after we, we started, a few more funny things happened. One is that... Uh, one of the people who was helping us was the local park ranger. He was, like, in charge of this national park land. Um, and you saw these giant signs at the entrance, no fires allowed. And he brought us in there for a weenie roast no. with a giant fire. <laughs> oh, no. Oh and I was like, we were like, doesn't that sign, We I think we read <laughs> Russian, and doesn't that say no fires? And he was like, oh, that's for other people. I have mm -hmm. weenie roast. Oh, my gosh. I have and oh my gosh. The other funny thing about that trip is because it was a border zone, there were border guards just mm. kind of walking the streets. And these were kids who were like 18 years old and had never really been much of anywhere. And um, they kept stopping us because they wanted to look at us, our passports and talk to us. 
And so it'd be like, oh, border guards, you know, give us your documents. I was like, guys, you stopped us 10 minutes ago by the coffee shop. No, we want to see your documents. And it'd be like, wow, look, a Belarus. Oh, look, an Indian visa. I was like, come on, guys, we got work to do. They were just so interested. They had to see. They just wanted to hang out with us. I wish the video was up because when um, you talked about the weenie roast, my headphones flew off because <laughs> really? yeah, because I threw my head back because it's hilarious. Oh my gosh! Then there's one one last funny thing about of the course. trip. So we were staying in the only kind of hotel in town, but it was like a guest house, and so um, it didn't have a shower. Ooh. It had a bathtub, and so we said to them, um, "We haven't actually sh- bathed in three <sighs> days that we've been here. Could we maybe?" take a bath in that nice bathtub you have and we'd be happy to pay extra you know if you need like extra hot water or something and they were like no no that's where we would do the laundry you can't bathe in it so was like we can pay you a lot like, no <laughs> we'll no that's for the laundry go to find some go find a, rev- a river oh <laughs> did you find a God. river no we didn't it no. was three days i think with no shower and it was pretty disgusting <laughs> but that you do anything for the story right there you go well, the that's, lesson the that's lesson what learned. i was gonna ask is how did you find out about this town what how did you find out about this story I can't remember, uh, you know, we read what was in the Russian press and we'd read websites. So I I think, I can't remember if it was in the Russian press in like a little mention or if a a colleague had done a story or if we found it checking with ecological organizations, which, you know, we'd check with all kinds of sources to just kind of say, hey, what's going on? You got anything for us? So I can't remember how we found the story, Um, but it was, it was really very very sad that the Russian government didn't want to help these people and they were they were kids you know a little bit younger than you that we met going to the high school and they were like we like we can't remember stuff like something's weird going on with our bodies and nobody in the Russian government will do anything so we went to the local hospital to try to talk to the doctors and they this hospital didn't even have an x-ray machine Oh my goodness. Oh I my don't know gosh. what it did yeah. have. I yeah. guess it had some band-aids and some <laughs> very frustrated doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's it's always like this when you go out with Russia, you know, to Russia. The, the people are, are so warm and, and lovely. Um, and then you hear about their issues with the government and you just think, wow, these people really deserve better. Because, you know, what would happen in a, you know, I would I would like to think if something was happening like that here, the government would say, okay, one, we have to stop dropping toxic rocket fuel on you. And two, mm-hmm. we have to get you some decent medical care and figure out if we're causing cancer and move you away and, and fix this. And I think that's always something to grapple with is the idea that you go in, you see what's happening, it's heartbreaking, but then you get to leave. Mm-hmm. And that's, for me personally, that's always really hard to wrestle with and to come to terms with. And I think it's just understanding that you're doing what you can by writing the story. Yeah, I remember there was uh, definitely an environmental activist in Moscow who was helping this people. And um, we met so many people, courageous people um, in Russia who wouldn't give up. You know, yeah, maybe we left, but just the fact that we had done a story gave them a piece of hope. It gave them something to prove that their concerns were legitimate. So maybe the Russian government didn't listen, but just the fact that these people could say, hey, CBS was here, 
this mm-hmm. is important, you know, hopefully it, it helped them get attention to important issues in the country. Yeah, and in so many ways, journalism provides more than just information, like for people that don't have a voice, like it is their voice, it is their hope. So I I am very, very <laughs> envious of you both that you have the ability to do that. So, yeah, but my next question is perhaps a little bit selfish, perhaps something for <laughs> me and Shelby, as well as a lot of our listeners. It is the classic, if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be and why? Oh, just work harder. Hmm. Work, you know, goof off less. <laughs> work, work more. Um, have more faith in myself, too. Um, when I was coming out of uh, college, um, I went to Barnard, the women's college at Columbia. Um, I only applied for jobs at newspapers, and I got, like, Xeroxed rejection letters from, like, a hundred places and maybe two or three places sent me an actual letter saying hey Beth you have good clips you know we don't have a job but keep at it Um, and so I think I just folded pretty easily Um, and so I think it's important to have faith in yourself that if you're coming out of college and you've got say a degree in something that you're probably more capable than you think but also that hard work will get you so far. I don't think I, I think I've always been a pretty hard worker, but I don't think I understood that hard work is something that can make people stand out. When you're the first one in and the last one out, day after day after day, it buys you a lot of goodwill with people. And, And it's the way that a lot of famous people started. So, you know, Barbara Walters, you know, one of the most famous interviewers in the world, she started out, I mean, she came from sort of a, a, a crazy family. Her father was a, owned a nightclub, and he would be rich, and then he'd lose his money gambling and be poor, and then he'd make more money, and then he'd lose it. She had a very crazy upbringing. And when she decided that she wanted to be on television, she worked harder, probably you know, twice as hard as the men and harder than anybody else. She was every day, first one in, last one out. Anybody had an extra assignment, her hand went up. Work Saturday, okay. Work Sunday, sure, whatever it takes. And it took her years um, to break through. And in fact, um, she had a devil of a time being taken seriously and getting onto the same footing as the men when she was hosting the Today Show. It took her something like you know 10 years to become the co-host of Today like the men. But she was relentless and, and being relentless can be a, a very good thing. Now, you don't want to only work and not have life and not have friends. A balanced life is important, <laughs> too. But I, I don't think I understood, and so I, I would tell your listeners that what happens to you is more in your own hands than you think. Like, yeah, like opportunities will come and go, and we all have good bosses and bad bosses, but you have the ability to work hard and to set goals for yourself. And the, the people who work hard, I'm, I'm pretty sure if you did a study, you would find that they are the ones who go the furthest in life and are the happiest because they achieve the things that they set out to do. And that's something that I've kind of been learning over the past two years especially is it doesn't matter if you regret, like, oh, I wish I worked harder freshman year. Mm-hmm. Like, I wish I was more involved. Because as soon as you recognize that, that's day one, you can start right then. And mm-hmm. it... I think that was something that I had to come to terms with is it doesn't matter if I have regret over not doing something. 
because why don't I just start it now? Why don't I just do it now? Mm-hmm. And in journalism, I love to see, it's so exciting to see everybody around me feel the same way. And for a long time, I thought that I was so intimidated by peer competition. And it was like the worst thing in the world mm-hmm. to me. And now I think I'm at a point where I see what a huge advantage it is and how hard your friends and the people around you can push you. Mm -hmm. Same with um, creative advertising, like all the classes that I'm in, all the students are starting to put out pretty high quality work and you can tell they put hours and hours behind these campaigns that they're presenting to the class. But it's funny that you said these last two years because freshman, sophomore year, if you put forth something that looked like you put so much effort into it and so much work, it was like, well, that's not cool. That's not right. <laughs> but these past two years, I'm just, I'm so excited that everyone around me is kind of like feeling that burn and that desire to want to do more. Because one, it means you're enjoying what you're doing. You see the purpose behind what you're doing. And two, it's you're putting out work that means something. It's not just, you know, the assignment that you have to turn in before midnight. So, exciting stuff. And working hard can be terrifying at points. Like, it's intimidating. Um, which brings us to our last question is we were really interested. Is there a decision that you've made somewhere along your career path that scared you in the moment? But now when you look back in hindsight, you kind of think like, that wasn't that bad. Like, why was I so freaked out over nothing? Oh, I'll, I'll tell you the first time I went to Russia, I was terrified. <laughs> I was so scared. I almost didn't go. Um, I was writing my doctoral dissertation about Mikhail Gorbachev and how he used the press when he was the leader of the Soviet Union. And so I got a little grant to go to Berlin and then on to Moscow. And, uh, you know, I'd never been in that part of the world. And uh, I went to Berlin to participate in a little program. And there were some women on the program who had been in Moscow. And they were like, oh, it's so terrible. Oh, you know, it's dark. And oh, the people, it's creepy and scary. And after like a couple of days of talking to them, I was totally freaked out. And I was, I was thinking to myself, oh, maybe I should cancel this trip because it sounds terrible. But I was like, but I got to write my dissertation. I already paid for the ticket. So <laughs> I, oh, I'm just going to go and go, gosh, you know, that hope is it'll go such, okay. That's such a mood of like, I already paid for it. <laughs> like, I have to go now. I don't have a choice. <laughs> and it turned out to be the most life-affirming uh, totally changed my life. I totally fell in love with it. The people had incredible warmth. They were so fun. Um, to meet American for them was the coolest thing. And everybody, the first thing everybody was like, can you teach me to curse in English? I want to know all the bad words. Of course. I'm like, oh, of course. But, um, and then I ended up, you know, f- so falling in love that I started going back to do more research. And then I ended up moving there and working for 14 years. And having uh you know an, an amazing time and i i you know I, i'm frustrated by the russian government but i i love the russian people you know they're just have an incredible warmth to them i i just sort of wish we could all just hang out without our governments getting in the way because we'd all mm-hmm. love each other and uh and have a lot of fun so yeah so i look back at that and um you know i still get intimidated by things we all do and I try to remember that, you know, you can look at something as a, an issue or a problem, or you can look at it as an opportunity. That's Definitely. a good way to put it. That very much is. And if I'm being fully transparent, this was extremely scary for me. I've never, quote unquote, interviewed anybody before. 
But in hindsight, this is a, an amazing opportunity to learn something new from someone who has gone through like so many amazing experiences. So thank you so much. Well, if you read my book, <laughs> uh, which oh. is called Heat and Light, Advice for the Next Gen Generation of Journalists, which I wrote, uh, oh my gosh, in 2010, uh, with somebody who you guys probably don't know, Mike Wallace, who was uh, the original 60 Minutes correspondent. He reported for CBS until he was 89 years old quite a character, quite an amazing investigative reporter and journalist. And so we wrote this book to like hand it to people like you who are young and just say, oh, maybe you want to be a journalist or maybe you want to know how to interview people. Just, you know, here it is. And so a really good interview is it's just like a conversation. So we, we all have conversations all the time. So, hey, not so scary. Can you yes. explain what the meaning is behind heat and light. Why do you choose that as a title? Oh, so that's a good question. So um, the reason that we wrote this book is I invited Mike to come visit Fordham after I got there in 2007. And he said some things about journalism that I had never really heard, like that he thinks of uh, an interview as a negotiation because you, the journalist, want something out of it. But the person who's being interviewed wants something too. And if you can figure out what that is, it will help you do a good interview. And I, I never really thought about it. And so after the interview was over, I was like, Mike, you're amazing. You really should write a book about how to do journalism. You've had this amazing career. I think he won 21 Emmy Awards, something like that. Um, or, you know, we could do it together. And he's like, that's <laughs> a great idea, Beth. Let's do it together. Um, and so heat is drama. Light is information. So really good journalism has both. Having one without the other, not so good. So think about it, like what makes you keep reading? What makes you keep tuned in and not like on your phone one minute after a story starts on, you know, on, on the television or on your phone? It's like if there's something dramatic, it'll pull you in. And then once you've pulled someone in, you can give them a lot of good information. That's a great way. That to was think amazing. About it. Yeah. <laughs> the best interview advice I had ever heard was to look at it like go in and think I'm someone who knows a fair amount about a lot of different topics. I know a little bit about a lot of things and I'm going to talk to somebody who knows a lot about this one thing and I want to know everything I can about that subject. And I think that curb checked my ego a little bit <laughs> <laughs> as like a freshman is like you're right. I'm not going into this knowing. And that's the whole point. Mm -hmm. My biggest fear when I was your age and a young reporter was, oh, my gosh, what if I'm reporting a story and I miss something important? How am I going to get back to the person? So now that's a lot easier. You just say, can I have your phone number? Can I text you? Can <laughs> yeah. I email you? Or also I got in the habit of saying questions like, is there anything important that I missed? <laughs> Or is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask about? And you and to try to this is this came from Mike too mm -hmm. to kind of enlist that person that you're interviewing to be your ally, give them openings to help you out. Anything you would like to talk about? <laughs> I was <laughs> thinking the exact same thing <laughs> that we haven't touched on yet. No, you guys had great questions. Really impressive. Deanna, I think you might have picked the wrong major. <laughs> Darn it, there's <laughs> one semester left. I'll change. I can change. You could do it. I think so. I'm not, I throw a minor in there. No, I believe in you. Nice. <laughs> we keep our episodes pretty short. Commute time um, the way from Lakeshore Campus to Water Tower Campus. So this about 
wraps up our time. Next week is our Thanksgiving episode. Um, don't worry, even though it's Thanksgiving break, Dion and I will be here. We're always like here for always you, with a very grateful, very thankful episode. <laughs> Look, looking forward to it for sure. Thank you so much for listening along with us, and Beth, thank you so 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 much for thank coming you. in today. Oh, you're so welcome. I couldn't have imagined a better studio inaugural episode. I think this pretty much fit, you know. This, this room is now baptized by us, exactly. by this interview. This very hot, hot a little, room. <laughs> a little sweaty, but that's totally okay. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you stick with us. Hopefully, you'll be there when we get there. Bye. Bye. Bye.